fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. All right, thanks, you. Well, it's great to see everyone. A special welcome to those of you joining us online. Hope everyone had a relaxing Thanksgiving weekend. Last week, we talked about our vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we talked about some next steps. We kind of laid out ways that each of us individually and as a church, we can take those next steps in 2022 and beyond. So if you missed that, I encourage you to check out that sermon. Also, there's a lot of uh, material that we placed, posted online, so you can check that out there too. We're also a church where it is okay to not be okay. All of us are in process at some level or another. There's no perfect people here. But we're also a church where we don't want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we love you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we've been learning about that truth from Jesus himself as he's talking to his disciples, and we call this the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying it really since August, and as he describes his kingdom, he literally turns the disciples' world upside down, just like he's doing for us. Because the things that the world prizes, God despises, and the things that God prizes, the world despises. And that's why if you feel less and less like you belong in this world, as we go through this series, that's a good thing, because we're not made for this world. God is shaping us for his kingdom. So for um, the last couple of weeks, we've been working through this mini-series, and we close it out today, and we've been kind of going through three examples that Jesus uses to illustrate this point when he says, be careful doing righteous acts in front of other people to gain credit for yourself. And especially, he uses examples of giving to the needy and praying. And those are good things for us to do. But as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we can get sloppy with it at times. When we get sloppy, we allow sin to kind of enter into even those good things. And then, of course, this week, Jesus adds fasting to the list. And I was kind of looking at your faces as she was reading that for us today. And some of you are like, shoot, picked a bad week to show up at church. Um, this guy's going to make us fast now. Um, or maybe the other um, what thing you were thinking is, who preaches on fasting on Thanksgiving week? Right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But actually, the more I've been studying this, it seems like that's really when we need to be preaching about fasting. Because hopefully during Thanksgiving, we've all had some time to step back and be grateful for the many blessings and gifts that God has given us. But fasting helps us look past that and actually be thankful for the giver himself. So it's been my prayer all week that as a church, we will be compelled to look at fasting and see how we might enter that into our faith life. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. We'll ask his help and then we'll dig in. Father, your name is above all names. Your kingdom reigns supreme. We desire to do your will in all things. Grant not only our material, relational, and spiritual needs, but teach us what you want us to know about fasting so that we might hunger 
for you even more. That's our heart's desire. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start with a quick reminder of what fasting is and the role that it played in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day. As you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's referred to as the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the same five books we share with the Jewish faith. These books contain a great deal of our faith history, and they've largely shaped even how we relate to God today. It covers the creation accounts. Then it moves on to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then the nation Israel being enslaved by Egypt and how Moses is then called to pull them out of Egypt and they spend 40 years in the desert and then eventually end up right on the cusp of the promised land and he hands the baton over to Joshua. And that's kind of where those five books end. Of course, these five books also contain three of the five major covenants that God made with man. Obviously, the one with Noah, where he's not going to wipe out the earth again with a flood. And then the one with Abraham, where Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation. And then this one with Moses, where Moses is going to lead the people into the promised land. And God gives Moses this law. And that law is largely comprised of the, those, makes up those five books. And that law contains the Ten Commandments, holy days, feasts, that eye for an eye thing we talked about, and it's also where we find the language God used to call Israel to a fast on the 10th day of the seventh month for 24 hours. We find that in Leviticus 16. So one day of abstaining from food a year on the day of atonement when the high priest would make a sacrifice so that the sins from the past year would be forgiven. So fasting has its roots in atonement, purification, repentance, and being made right before God. And while the minimum requirement from the law was only once a year, we also find other examples in Scripture of fasting. For example, Moses fasted for 40 days when he was, when he was with God on the mountaintop to inscribe the law on the tablets. David fasted when the son born to him out of an adulterous affair was inflicted with an illness by God. When King Jehoshaphat learned that the enemy was closing in on all sides, he called the entire nation of Judah to a fast. So we see fasting as a way for God's people to seek him, to seek his provision, his guidance, his forgiveness, and sometimes even to grieve. But this just wasn't an Old Testament thing. Jesus fasted for 40 days when the Holy Spirit led him out into the desert after he was baptized to fast in preparation for him being tempted by the devil and also for his public ministry. In Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees typically fasted two days a week. So it had become another one of those routine religious rituals. It was a way for them to demonstrate their piety. So clearly other people knew that they were doing it. In fact, Jesus even asked why his Jesus was asked by the Pharisees and scribes why his disciples didn't fast. And he said, because I'm here. The God incarnate 
was right in front of them. So there was no need for them to fast for the sake of seeking God. He was standing before them in the flesh. But Jesus did indicate that the disciples would fast once he left them. And we find evidence of them fasting throughout the New Testament. So fasting is clearly part of our faith tradition. It's when we forego food for a period of time for a specific spiritual purpose. So now how does fasting fit into Jesus' lesson for today? Well, if you've been following along the past few weeks, we see language in this passage that is nearly identical to the language used in the previous passages Jesus uses to make this case on giving and praying. It says, when you fast, don't be a hypocrite. That's the exact same word he used, meaning don't be an actor, don't pretend. Don't do it to be seen by others, do it in secret. Again, the exact same language. Where your father, the only other person who operates in our secret space, will see it and reward you. Again, identical language. In other words, don't play up your religious acts for the purposes of getting people's attention so that they might say, wow, she sure is devout. Look how often she's willing to suffer by fasting for her faith. Rather, Jesus says, anoint your head, wash your face, so that no one knows you're fasting. Again, this isn't Jesus telling us to misrepresent ourselves. He uses this exaggerated literary technique throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? So each time he uses this approach, he does it to illustrate his point, that we should take extreme measures to ensure that we are not fasting with selfish motives to build up our reputation, but that our hearts, our internal intentions behind fasting are genuine and focus simply on seeking God's face in that secret space where only he operates. So fasting is intensely personal. It's not to be used for anything else. All three of these cases up here that Jesus has talked about make this point, the giving, the praying, and the fasting. All are wonderful things for us to do. We're called to do them as Christians. And even though we are on that narrow, well-lighted path, there's still always the temptation to seek glory for ourselves that that wide, dark path up there offers. So after three weeks of hitting this, hopefully we're all seeing how easy it is for even the good things to go sideways. That's what happens whenever we put self before God. It's the basis for all of our sin, and it follows us absolutely everywhere. But that's also why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit after we're born again, after we have that red dot transformation that we've been talking about over and over again throughout the fall. The Holy Spirit is there to counsel and direct us down that narrow, well-lighted path so we must learn to listen and respond to him. So now let's step back. And I want to look at this in the overall context of this mini-series that we're wrapping up today. Hopefully this next graphic will help us gain a holistic perspective on what Jesus has been teaching us these past few weeks. So this entire chapter 6 is all about 
how we live in the presence of God, our Father. So it all starts there with his name that we sang about this morning and all that it entails. Our Father, who is the creator, he sustains everything that he creates. How does he sustain us? Through grace, by giving us what we don't deserve. He gives us gifts to sustain us, our talents, food, water, even the air we breathe. Every breath is dependent upon him. Forgiveness, strength to do the right thing. In other words, absolutely everything, as we learned last week. We're totally dependent on him for all of our material, relational, and spiritual needs. So we use these gifts to sustain us. But as Christians, we're also called to do things with the gifts that he gives us. We can, first of all, give them away to others. That's what Cammie preached on a couple weeks ago. Giving to the needy, to the church, and to everyone who God puts in our path. Being generous in response to these gifts, giving our talents, our time, and our treasure to others. God often blesses others through the gifts that he gives to us. So it's a righteous act for us whenever we give them to others. We're also called to pray. Not only are we to pray for the gifts that we need ourselves, but we're also to pray for the gifts that others might need, for their material, relational, and spiritual needs alike. And when we pray for God to meet other people's needs, just like we saw with giving, he sometimes answers those prayers through us. So the giving and the praying, they go hand in hand. And similarly, we're not to do either in a way that brings credit to us. No, we're to do it all for God's glory, for his great name, as heirs of his kingdom, and to carry out his will. And that's what we've been learning for the past three weeks. But there's at least one more issue that surfaces whenever we step back to look at this little mini-series in this way. Do you see how it's quite possible that we begin to take our eyes off of God, our Father, the source of the gifts, because instead we begin to place too much emphasis on the gifts themselves? And we can see this when we give to others in ways that bring glory to ourselves instead of God or when our prayers become gift-focused instead of God-focused, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer last week. How many of us this past week found ourselves going straight to our needs and missing the first part, the Our Father? Our entire focus must be on our Father such that our prayers for ourselves and others align with His glory. So then how does fasting fit in? Well, fasting is one of the disciplines that helps us work on this issue because through it, we abstain from food, from the gift. Not because food is bad, but because we want to focus exclusively on the giver, our Father, not his gifts. Fasting is a way for us to set aside, to truly seek communion with the Lord, to acknowledge him as the source of our strength, as the substance of our work, and as the object of all of our endeavors. So you see how these three hang together, giving, praying, 
and fasting. They all complement each other. So does this mean that we should start fasting every Wednesday? No. Don't make it a routine thing in your life. Does it mean that fasting is a way that we develop spiritual discipline? No. It's not to make us more disciplined. Does it mean if I fast, God will give me what I'm fasting for? No. But we can trust him to give us exactly what we need. Does it mean if I fast, I will gain clarity to make a decision? Possibly. But again, that's not why we fast. These are all natural questions that we can be led to. But they all miss the main point of fasting. Fasting is simply abstaining from God's gifts, food, for a period of time to bring our focus on Him, not the gift. It should be done now and again for a specific spiritual reason, a way for us to express our hunger for God, to grieve our sin, and to convey our heartfelt desire to be perfectly right before our Father in heaven. And perhaps as a way for us to discern whether we've begun to be more content with the gifts than with our Father. It must not be entered into haphazardly, but rather after some time, recollecting, like we learned last week, pausing, preparing, meditating, and seeking the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So the past few days has given me sort of unique insight into this. This is an imperfect example, but it helped me so I hope it will help you as well. As you know, our family has gone through quite a bit of change over the last year, retiring after 31 years in the Army, moving to a new location, starting a new job. It's all been quite a shift. But probably the most profound thing has been that Jen and I are now empty nesters. And so um, it's so different to be alone in the house. And we really like our kids. Um, we miss them tremendously. Um, we also know that it's just this season. It's time for them to go on and make a life for themselves. But that doesn't mean that we don't miss them. And of course, um, they still call every now and then. Um, they text. Um, and so they want to talk about what's going on in their life, the trials, the tragedies, the triumphs, the failures. Um, and we love that. And don't get me wrong, that's a tremendous gift to Jen and I. We look forward to those. But there's just something so special about just sitting with them on the couch, in their presence, not even saying a word, don't even need to talk about things. It's just being there in their presence. It's so powerful. It's moments like that when you experience a peace and a joy and a sense of gratitude that you just can't explain. It's those moments that make us long for the next one, to hunger for them, it's those moments that are going to make us walk to the end of the driveway today and stand there away with them till we can't see the cars anymore. It's that hungering, it's that longing to just be in their presence. And that's kind of what fasting does for us. It sets aside the peripherals in our relationship with God so that we can focus instead solely on Him, being in His presence and just enjoying Him, not as gifts but our Father makes us long to experience it with Him again and again, to hunger even more with Him with each passing day. And while the circumstances of this world 
prevent us from experiencing him in the fullness of his presence now, we will one day experience him in all his glory, that fullness when we stand before him in heaven. John Piper describes it so well in his book entitled Hunger for God. In it he writes, the more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ, the more homesick you get for heaven, the more you want the fullness of God, the more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom to come again, the more you long for every wrong to be made right. If you don't feel strong desires for the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. I love that line, because we've nibbled too long at the table of the world. Is that us? Have we been doing that? Are we so stuffed with the small things, the gifts, that there's no room for the great things, the giver? Might fasting help us identify the gifts that have filled us so that we might make room instead for our Father? That's actually what our whole Advent series is going to be about. Hope you can join us tonight, 5 o'clock out back. We're going to be looking at this issue of how do we prepare Him room to come live with us. Similarly, C.S. Lewis writes in his essay, The Weight of Glory, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's us. Isn't it? Content with the gifts, those mud pies, when we could be in the presence of the giver, a holiday at sea. Fasting helps us experience that joy of being in the presence of our Father by setting aside our dependence on his gifts so we can focus on him and him alone. And each time we do, we become hungrier and hungrier to go deeper and deeper and our relationship with him. Simply just to know him more. He is worthy. There's none beside him. He's the Lord Almighty. He's the great I am. So there's no call for a fast today. You can relax. But I do encourage everyone to recollect on this. Certainly don't enter into it lightly, but ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. He was there when Jesus fasted for 40 days, and he will be there for us too. That's his role, sanctifying us, walking us down that well-lighted, narrow path. Perhaps fasting may help you even consider your role in our let's go effort that we talked about last week. That stuff on the bottom, those pillars, we're hoping that you'll pick two or three of those and kind of pray about how you might get behind them in 2022 and beyond so that we can focus on student ministry and those local mission efforts that we've been praying about. We think it's really important for us, each of us, to seek God's will in all of this for our lives individually and collectively as a church. We've also posted some guidance on fasting on our website under the prayer resources page. 
Check that out. If you go to that thing, you can see all these graphics up there and really see where we're headed in the next couple of years. If this is something you're compelled to do, check those resources out and feel free to reach out to me or anyone on our staff. We would be so excited to walk alongside you through this. Lord, we long to be in your presence. So we come this morning humbling ourselves that we might seek your face as we worship you individually in our hearts and collectively as a church. Help us to always be grateful for your endless provision and to hunger even more for a deeper relationship with you. May we live to glorify your great name as heirs of your kingdom and to carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven. For Jesus' sake, amen. So for response time today, let's just take a few minutes and definitely thank the Lord for his gifts and his blessings. That's important for us to do. But then step past that and just thank God for being our Father.